Brethren, I think we're all aware, should be all aware of the fact we're living in a very vicious age. It is a wicked age, but it's a vicious age. And when you saw the news on television last night, as I did, and about this second man having his head chopped off by these militants, these Al-Qaeda militants, it does kind of make you feel bad. It puts a mental image, at least in my mind occasionally, of someone that I might have loved, and there he is, and they're grabbing him and holding him or whatever and chopping his head off. And uh, that, that hurts. That's going to happen an awful lot more to Americans. I don't want anyone to think that this is the end. This is not the, you know, the end of the beginning. It's just the start. And I'm sorry to say that, but this kind of thing is going to happen again and again and again and again and again a million times over. And I'm not exaggerating over the next 5 to 25 years, however long God has in mind. We're going to be humiliated unless we repent as a nation as we have never repented before and get back to the true God of the Bible and to really begin keeping His commandments, not just talking about it, but doing it. And we know that. We know prophecy says that. But it does hurt. We're living in a vicious age. And we do need to get out the warning message to help our people And we do want to do that in love for them, not just to yell at them, but in love for them, to help them, to wake them up before it's too late. Beside that, though, brethren, we want to realize that we ourselves in the church of God here and all you brethren around the world and all the scattered congregations that I'm preaching to now and greetings, Shabbat Shalom, happy Sabbath to all of you, but all of us have got to walk the walk. We've got to practice the way of Christ. We just can't talk about the coming kingdom of God. We've got to practice that way of life. We may preach to others. Paul said he'd got to bring his own body into subjection, lest after he'd preached to others, he himself would be a castaway. And all of us have our faults. All of us have our mistakes. All of us are sitting in glass houses. And all of us continually need to examine ourselves and be sure that we are practicing that way of life. And be sure that we have our own priorities straight. That's very important. When I bend down, I heard it better. Can you hear me okay otherwise? Is it coming clue? Uh, well, even this way? I don't have to shout, I guess. Is that right? Okay, <laughs> good. When I bend down, it sounds better. But I better not bend down all the time <laughs> just to think it, it sounds better. Let's be sure that we do uh, get our own priorities straight. And remember the fact that just doing the work, just getting the message out there is not enough. That is not enough at all. So what is the real heart of true Christianity? What is the real heart of Jesus' teaching? What makes you a genuine Christian? Let's go to the foundation of all of this, brethren. And let's turn to the Sermon on the Mount, first of all, in Matthew chapter 5. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, and I'm going to begin reading here in the very first verse. I'll get a little bit of this tea here. This is perhaps the most foundational, basic teaching of all Christianity in the Bible. I think most scholars and most Church of God ministers recognize that. And seeing the multitudes, Jesus went up to a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. And then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, not kingdom in heaven, Protestants and Catholics get this all mixed up, of course, which you recognize. 
Not because we're better than they are, but God has called us. It's the kingdom of heaven, not the kingdom in heaven. It's the bank of Morgan. The bank is not in Mr. Morgan's tummy. He didn't swallow his piggy bank. I've used that illustration, but we need to understand. So the poor in spirit, does that mean we're spiritually destitute? Well, of course not. You have to understand that his expression means those who recognize their own emptiness, those who recognize their own human weakness, their own nothingness. Most of us understand that in general if we're really converted. We of ourselves are nothing. Even King David said, I'm just a worm. And, you know, we understand that. Nevertheless, we've got to really think about that. We've got to recognize how weak we are and how much we need God's help and not be self-righteous and proud of ourselves in a wrong way. Blessed are those who mourn. Again, it's not talking about every uh, Vietnamese widow who mourns because her husband got killed in the war, uh, you know, against the Americans or some Arab widow now or some American widow for that matter. Doesn't make any difference. That's sorry, sorrowful, very sorrowful. And we're the sorry for the families of Nick Berg and, and uh, this other Paul Johnson who was beheaded the other day. And no doubt their mothers or widows are mourning. And that's a sad thing. But it's not talking about that. Obviously, it's talking about spiritual mourning when you look into it. And blessed are those who sigh and cry, God tells us back in Ezekiel 9 and verse 4. Those who sigh and cry for the abominations of Israel. Those who realize how much this world needs God. And repent how much we need God and how we repent, hopefully, every day of our lives of various things we've done wrong. Blessed are the meek. Meek means humble, but it also has the connotation of teachable. Otherwise, it would just use the word, you know, humility or humble. The teachable, those who are willing to be taught. Mr. Pyle asked that God would inspire the teaching that needed to be given here today. And blessed are all of you if you're willing to be taught and learn from the teaching that comes from God's servants. For they shall be comforted. And in the end, they certainly will be. Blessed are the meek, again, uh, sorry, I jumped back again. The meek, those who are teachable, they shall inherit the earth. We don't go to heaven, we inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And, of course, that's so important. You've got to hunger and thirst for it. You've got to be willing to spend the time and the energy to fully pray and study and walk with God every day. And we've preached on that so often. If once you don't do that, you're in terrible trouble. You really are. Because I don't begin to have the strength to live the right way of life, to love others, to forgive others, to keep the devil from getting at me if I'm not studying and praying. And frankly, neither any of you. We're just not. So you've got to do your part hungering and thirsting for righteousness, which is God's Holy Spirit and God's way of life. For they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. Are you a merciful person? Do you forgive others? Do you overlook little things and not try to land on people about little things and have genuine kindness and warmth and outflowing concern, always keeping your mind on the big things, not on the little things, and are very quick to forgive, even to forgive and forget as best you can. God puts our sins out of his mind. He puts us as far away as the east is from the west and does not bring them to mind again. If we constantly dwell on the faults of others, the sins of others, and let those consume us, then, of course, they can kill us, literally. 
So we have to understand that. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. None of us are pure in heart. All of us have attitudes from time to time, motives from time to time, and so on. We understand that. That's part of human nature. But to the degree we let Christ live in us, to the degree that we really do this or do that because we honestly feel and more and more feel because it is truly true, that truly right, that we, we've studied God's Word and see that whatever we did is, do is based on what He said, and we do it because we want to please God, because we want to honor God, because we want to fulfill the purpose for which God gives us life and breath. If those are our motives, then we become pure in heart, you see, to that degree. A young man can be absolutely pure in heart and love a beautiful young woman and want to marry her, protect her, cherish her, take care of her, have her be the mother of his children, and all those things. But normally, his own sexual lust enters into part of that. He's thinking how she's pretty and she's this and that. And so he's not totally pure in heart. And neither is the young woman. They have mixed motives. A man may want to be successful and have money in order to take care of his family and have a good life and help others. But he also, no doubt, has the idea, I'd like to be important and I'd like to throw my weight around and have this extra money to be a big shot and so on. And then that becomes, in some cases, his God, as we've explained. He has mixed motives. Most people have mixed motives. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And someday, when we're made spirit, you know, we will be pure in heart. We're not totally pure in heart yet. But when we're made spirit, if we have shown God or by our attitude that that attitude is totally right, then God will give us a spirit body and the devil will be gone and then we can be completely pure in heart and then we will see God. We won't see God the Father, frankly, until that time. People saw God the Son, you know, the rock of Israel, the God of the Old Testament was Christ. They didn't see God the Father. Blessed are those who are, persecute, are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So that's a very important thing. Are you willing to go through trials and tests because you love God and serve God? Yes, you should be willing to do that. He says down in verse 13, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It's either then good for nothing, but be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Or to give the world this human race, the tang, a reason for being, a reason for God to protect the world from the coming holocaust. He says because of his elect, he will not destroy all humanity. And that may be the only reason, because he has an elect. Some people here are worth something to God, and they're willing to do what God says, so he will protect the world because of the salt. We need to be good for something and, have, and stand for something. You are the light of the world, verse 14. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. So the Christians are to be the light of the world. Nor do they light a lamp, but put it under a basket, and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, this is what Jesus instructs us. To do, He says, let your light shine. So my sermon title today, I don't always give you a title, but I've led into a lot of things along this line, which are all true, but shine your light. Shine your light. 
If you're going to be a real Christian, then you need to let your light shine, or putting it in a different way, perhaps more memorable, shine your light. Going on in the Sermon on the Mount, brethren, you see in the following verses, we're not only not to kill, we're not to hate. And he tells us in verse 27 and 8, you're not only not to commit adultery, you're not even to look on a woman to lust after her. You're to keep all of God's commandments, as he describes. He's magnifying all of the commandments. And certainly that is the way of life Christ teaches us and teaches us to be givers. He says in verse 42, give to him who asks you and from him who wants uh, to borrow, turn not away. You've heard it was said that you shall love your uh, neighbors and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who despitefully use you. Again, he tells us as a command to really love even our enemies and do good to them. That's not easy. Only through God's Holy Spirit can we have that attitude. Only through God's Spirit. Chapter 6. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds. Now, brethren, something we do not do enough of, perhaps, in God's church today, and I say that as a human leader responsible, so I'm perhaps partly responsible for that, we've had to start all over and starting global. Then we had to start all over and starting the living church of God. And then we had to reorganize ourselves back here in a different location. We've had all these things to get ourselves going, and even then we don't even begin to start to commence to have the men and women and the leadership and the talents and the money and all the other resources that Worldwide had when they got up to 60 or 80 or finally 150,000 members and 211,000, 211 million plus income at their peak. We don't have all that. I understand that. We've got to stress doing the work, getting the message out and living our own lives. Nevertheless, the Bible constantly talks about good works. And so I'm telling you here, brethren, and you brethren around the world, and all you ministers and elders listening in all around the world, I hope that we as a church can start doing more good works among ourselves, first of all, and that's God's way, but also to the world as we have opportunity. If there is a genuine tragedy here in Charlotte or a genuine terrible tragedy, maybe in Los Angeles or San Francisco, a huge massive earthquake, or other things like that, maybe our own brethren should start pitching in more than we have and do it on the individual level. But as we're able, if the church is big enough, I'm just being realistic as I think about the San Francisco church is so tiny, there may not be enough to do very much, but there might be. Sometimes our churches are composed of uh, five widows and one married couple. <laughs> you know what I mean? And we have to be realistic. We may not have to be able to get, able to get a great big team of people out there. Nevertheless, let's think about it, and let's try to do that to the extent that we can. He indicates we should be doing good works, but don't do your charitable works to be seen before men. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. And then he describes how the world does, you know, the Carnegie Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation, the Ford Foundation. They want to have a great big thing with their name on it and always, you know, that kind of approach. You know, we want to do it quietly. We want to do it lovingly, not just to do it to show off. We have members among us even here, and we have members among us around the United States who every now and then just go out of the way to help individual people, and that's good. I hope you'll keep that up and do it more. Help them, do good to them, serve them, encourage them, and God will reward you for that. That's what God does want us to do, not to show off. 
And then he says, when you pray, you shall not be as the hypocrites trying to show off in the way you pray or the way you do good deeds or the way you fast. He just gets, then gets to fasting. But to do these things because God is real to you right down to your toenails. You really do believe that God is right there at your right hand, so to speak. In Him we live and move and have our being. And that you do it because you love God. And Christ is real to you. And you want to imitate your Savior, Jesus Christ. And that is your attitude. Not just to make points all the time, but because you want to honor Him. You want to reflect Jesus Christ. And so you want to let your light shine because you are a Christian. And because you know that's what you ought to do. Again, that gets back to being pure in heart, you know, to have the right attitude, to have the right motivation, which often is not the case, even among Christians. We sometimes want to show off. We want to make points. We want to be the next deacon. We want to be the next deaconess. We remember the coffee pot war we had out west somewhere, (laughs) and the women were fighting over who was going to get to provide the next coffee pot and so on. And uh, that's all been said long ago. So excuse me, brethren out there, I won't name which city. Most people don't know, so don't worry about it. I know. But anyway, uh, those things do happen because we want to show off and get credit. Now, if our motive is pure, we're glad to have credit go wherever it needs to go and not always think we have got to get credit to show ourselves off, but because we honestly want to do good. So these are things that God is watching in us. And let your light shine just because you want to honor Jesus Christ, not because you're trying to get ahead or make points. Verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Yes, we're to seek first His kingdom, no question. We're to pray for His kingdom, work for His kingdom, get out the message for His kingdom, but we're also to seek His righteousness. And His righteousness is based on these things I've been talking about, love and worship, and adoration and obedience to God and love and kindness and warmth and service and outflowing concern constantly to fellow man. That's righteousness. And so we're to seek first those things together, not saying we're going to do the work and so everything will be all right. I've told you, brethren, in other sermons how some of the old codgers we met back in the 1950s, so most of them are dead now. I'm not going to hurt any of them, I don't think. I was 21, 22, and 23, and most of them were 20 to 40 or 60 years older than me. I mean, literally 60 years older uh, at that time, and so I think they're dead. But at that time, it reflected an attitude. Some have had sense. They don't express it quite as blatantly. They say, well, I gave my tithes to Brother Armstrong, and I listen to Brother Armstrong every night, you know, and, and I know I'll be with him in the kingdom. And it's kind of their attitude, and they, uh, and they met it. In just that way, I found out a number of them. Other didn't, some of them didn't mean it that way, but others literally meant it that way. Well, boy, I send my money in there, and I'm behind him. And they say, Herbert, give it to them preachers. <laughs> Mr. Armstrong was attacking the preachers for their sins. And these old guys, they were glad for Armstrong to give it to those preachers. But they didn't have the warmth and the kindness and the love to be concerned about even these other preachers who might be very nice men, but blinded, you know, Billy Graham and a number of ministers around here may be much nicer than any of us ministers as far as just being nice people. I don't know that. I'm just saying that. God knows that. He didn't call me because I had such a nice, mellow, warm, constantly bubbly personality. He called me for reasons I don't fully understand. (laughs) But perhaps he knew I was 
steady and, and wouldn't give up and quit and wouldn't be afraid and would go on till death does his part or whatever and use that. But that doesn't make me any better and that doesn't make me as good as some of these other people may be when God does call them some of these other preachers and some of these people and outlying churches who have a genuine kindness and warmth and loving, giving, gracious personality more than many of us. God didn't call us because we're so great. We ministers are we brethren, and all of us have to understand that. He called us because we're weak, and maybe we were weak enough to realize how much we needed God. And within that weakness, maybe we had certain strengths, you know, but not great strengths. He called very few who are great and mighty and noble, and I've met very few, and I'm not one of them. We have had one man who was sir in the uh, minor nobility in the church years ago. Some of you know who I mean, and the British minor British nobility, but very few who are of the aristocracy of any kind, financially or otherwise, have been called into God's church. If you may be before the end. But again, we don't want to be jealous of them or put them down. If they come in with a fancy tailored suit and maybe come up in a limousine, oh, look, he's all stucked up. Well, we don't know whether he's all stuck up or not. Maybe that's the only car he has right now, <laughs> his Cadillac limousine, <laughs> just the way he is. Maybe he'll later drive an old Ford if it finds it pleases people if he does that. You want him to strip off his nice suits just because he comes in here to see you? Maybe he thinks that's the way to honor God. He attended some upper crust church before. I remember one of the wealthy men in the church back in the 1950, Mr. Wilton, uh, Mr. Milton Ryman. And he was originally from uh, Pennsylvania, he and his wife, and they immigrated out to uh, the valleys of California. And they lived out from uh, Merced, a small town out there from there. And uh, they uh, were very, very uh, upper class and not a haughty type of upper class, but he had very fancy uh, suits and obviously rich suits and tailor-made. And he had a great big long stretch Cadillac. It wasn't a limousine, but the longest regular one you could get. And he came down to hear Dick Armstrong and me virtually every single night in our campaign in the summer of 1956. And his son-in-law drove him because he was already up in his 60s and getting tired. He had this big, tall son-in-law who drove him down. Well, I didn't worry about it. So you are you driving this big car more? All I have is a small car. Well, that's fine. You know, we loved him. And later he shared his home his beautiful home in the country, his swimming pool, everything with the church, with the church had them over for church socials, was a down-home person as best he could be within the sphere of, of uh, his education and his background. God will call people like that later. We mustn't judge those who are important-looking or acting and put them down, and we mustn't judge those who are poor and come in with a less, uh, less finery and less uh, uh, ability. Perhaps they have very poor grammar and vocabulary and stumble around and say the wrong thing. And their teeth may be falling out. I remember one of the most dedicated men I've ever known in my life, and I've told you about him before, was named Bill Homberger. And he was one of the most kind, serving, loving deacons that we've ever had in God's church. But he only had a sixth grade education. He had a peanut farm back in Texas, an old bachelor. And his teeth were falling out, and he butchered the English language. We didn't make him an elder because you could see God wasn't calling him to do that. He couldn't teach, and he couldn't express it that way. But boy, he expressed it in every other way. 
He helped people. He loved them. People came to the college, young men who were kind of mixed up and out of a job, and he would take them in and literally let them live in his room. And sometimes he only had one room there in the college, the original library building and the, and the second floor. And sometimes I found he actually slept on the floor so they could sleep in his bed, and the shower was down the hall. It was the men's room. They had a shower in it, so he had to walk next door to shower. And he lived there for years, took no salary at all, gave his life, his time, his talents, his energy, his pickup truck, which I helped tear up, and the other students, because we drove it more roughly than he did, I'm sure. And, uh, you know, he just gave it all to the college. And finally, after four to six years, Mr. Armstrong, you know, he said, oh, Bill's not getting a salary. I mean, we'd better give him something. I hear he's having hard times. So finally, he gave Bill a salary after all those years. But Bill was just there to serve. And uh, he had this attitude of, of giving. So God is going to reward that man a lot more than some of the iron-lunged evangelists who used to get up and correct people and correct people about all kinds of little stuff sometimes. Got all self-righteous about it. I remember one guy over in Brickett Wood would always try to outdo Mr. Armstrong. And if Mr. Armstrong said the girls had to have their skirts down to their knees, then this guy would tell well, they had to have it one or two inches below their knees. And women were not to wear trouser suits. And he'd just shout about that and make that a really big deal. Trouser suits meant pantsuits. And pantsuits were verboten. And he didn't want them wearing them to the gymnasium or a church or anywhere else. He made a great big deal of those things. And then later uh, on, and he would always tighten up the rules. He would be on what Mr. Armstrong said. He thought that's the way to make points, is to be more strict than the boss. Well, that's not the way to make points. But he thought it was. And finally, later on, things went wrong, and he had a certain demotion, and, and this and that. I better not say too much. I don't, some few of you might know, but I'm not trying to hurt the man. I'm just trying to give a principle here. Then he left God's church and went back at first to sort of Pentecostalism, and then a sort of a watered-down Protestantism later, I understand. And I don't know where he is today. I think he's still alive. But those things happened, and he literally went totally away from all of that strict stuff that he taught, he and another guy, the dean of students at one point there, used to get young men from America in a room there at the college and yell at them and try to break them down and even make young men cry. And I came over there and I was the liberal because I immediately stopped a lot of that. And they, they, were, they were mad at me because they thought I was too strict at Pasadena and I was too liberal at brick and wood, so you can't win for losing sometimes, you see what I mean. But I was trying to get the right balance in there. And uh, those things happen. Brethren, keep your mind on the big picture, not on little stupid stuff. Some of the stuff you get your minds on sometimes to make you feel more self-righteous than others is, frankly, I think in God's sight, stupid stuff. You're trying to judge everybody about little tiny stuff, and you won't get in God's kingdom that way. You've got to get over it. We've got to get over that as a church and not be doing that. We've got to have God's righteousness, and God's whole righteousness is based on the Ten Commandments, not little tiny stuff that's not really in the Ten Commandments at all. Notice chapter 7, judge not that you be not judged. That's a command from Jesus Christ. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the same measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at a speck? Some kid comes in with something wrong. Some girl comes in with a dress that's too short. Or some young man comes in with earrings. Or some girl wears toenail polish or something. 
I heard in one just the other day talking to one of our leaders out west. So you don't need to worry. Out west is almost everywhere west of here. (laughs) And this one very, very strict couple who are leaders in a certain situation just virtually split up a certain group. And one of the things they got was this one young woman who just really on her case something awful because she wore toenail polish. Well, now, I don't wear toenail polish, so you don't need to persecute me. (laughs) But I think my wife does sometimes. I don't really watch that that much. And I say, so what? I don't think God is very concerned about toenail polish. And if you do, you've got a little pea brain. Get over it, all of you. That is stupid stuff compared to the laws of God. And I hope we can understand that. Mr. Armstrong, when the work was growing and people were being healed more than ever, allowed the women to wear makeup from 1934 until 1953. Or no, 54, excuse me, 20 years. 20 years. And we had more divine healings during those years than any other time. And the women wore men. No one ever said anything about it. They were just sometimes these older women would pick on the younger ones. I don't know if the women, younger women ever picked on the older ones, but some old uh, strict ones from the Sardis church felt more self-righteous about that. So they would pick on the younger women or those who did wear makeup. But finally, other things came up. And I won't go on the story, but one of his daughters, frankly, way overdid it. And so he made this ruling and and, uh, then decided we shouldn't wear makeup. So for 20 years, we didn't wear makeup in the church. And the the growth kept going, but not as many healings were done at that time. I don't think that was the reason, but nevertheless, that's the truth. And so from 54 to 74, we didn't wear makeup. And then he began to realize that, well, that was wrong. His daughter was traveling with him, one of them, as his hostess to visit Uh, King uh, Leopold of Belgium and uh, his wife and uh, Judge so-and-so there of the world court, Judge Singh, I guess, and uh, other people around the world of note, various emperors and kings and prime ministers. And uh, he came over to Brickett Wood. And one of the leaders over there says, how can this be this way one time and this way another time? And he was all really upset about it, very emotional. And I told him, I was deputy chancellor and his boss, so I could talk to him as the older guy. I said, look, George. His name was not George. I always use George as a, you know, whatever, and a catchphrase. I said, look, George, you don't understand Mr. Armstrong. Mr. Armstrong will stay to the big picture, but sometimes he'll go over here and there, but always come back to the big picture in the end. And I found him doing that on makeup again and again and other things like that. He said, well, Rod, he says, I told him about some of my being upset and other things that were not handled rightly by the men around him, who said neither thickness, depth, or intensity makes any difference, as though you could paint up like a circus clown and that would be all right. And he had his column telling that women could wear, but wear modestly on the left-hand side of the mini bowl, they called it. Then on the right-hand side was this man's column, the bulletin, I guess it was called. And uh, anyway, uh, so this man literally contradicted him, I guess, thinking he'd never read it. But he did read it, or at least I had him read it. I read it to him in the contradiction. <laughs> and, of course, he didn't mean that either. Either extreme is not good. But I said, uh, Mr. Armstrong will get back to the middle. Well, I told him about the problem. And he said, well, Rod, he says, I, 
I, uh, I don't want our women to look like old Salvation Army women. And he said, my daughter's meeting these important women all over the world and makeup is not that big a deal. And so we've got to back off and be more balanced. And he told me that very forcefully, you know, because I was trying to say, well, you know, and here you're offending people over here because Brickett Wood was more uh, conservative than Pasadena was at that time. But he preached at me fairly strongly about that. And then later, because of another personal situation, changed it back again. And then later it got changed back again the other way where we could wear makeup. And then that's where global started. So I just thought I'll leave it alone. <laughs> leave the cows alone. They will come home, you know, saying is I thought, leave it alone. <laughs> so we've left it alone. But on the other hand, I want you, brethren, to understand it's no big deal to God as long as a woman wears it modestly and doesn't try to paint on like a circus clown or some Hollywood character or something like that. It is not a big deal as long as you try to look reasonably natural and it's part of your dress. You know, we used to say some of the old-fashioned ministers and try to take it even one step further. Well, it looked like a harlot. Well, is that so? Well, I felt like hitting him a few times. Was my mother a harlot? My mother was not a harlot. The very kind, dedicated, very clean, pure woman. But all the ladies at that time in the 1920s and 30s, you remember, they were wearing makeup. It was an article of dress. You put on your shoes and socks and you put on makeup and you'd walked outside and if you didn't, you just weren't dressed properly. And that's the way the attitude was at that time. She was not trying to look outlandish one way or the other. But uh, anyway, it's good to get our balance on that. If God was very concerned about makeup, brethren, here and you brethren around the world, how come He has all these ordinances all the way through the Old Testament, you know, Exodus, Genesis, Exodus, uh, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And he tells you if you have a flat roof, you'd better put a railing around it so people don't fall off. And if you're going to move a bird's nest, he tells you how to do that. And he tells you all kinds of things, even how to use the bathroom out in the outside and cover it up and all this kind of stuff. Remember, he gets down to pretty tiny stuff. But he never, ever mentions makeup and yet makeup was worn regularly in Egypt, and God shows there in the Bible they followed the Egyptians when they came out a lot. He never condemned it. Not even one half verse on that, one way or the other. But some of us think it's a badge of righteousness to wear no makeup. Well, it's not. It's not a sin not to wear makeup, but it is a sin if it makes you feel more righteous than someone else. It is a, re a sin if you judge others by that kind of stuff. It just is. That is wrong. It has nothing to do directly with the Ten Commandments. And it's very important to realize that if that was a clear thing in the Bible, God's apostle would not have gone over here and then over there and then over here and then over here again. He wouldn't have done that, obviously. Judge not that you be not judged, for with what judgment you judge, will you will be judged. If you're really strict and trying to catch people, if that's your attitude, then God will probably catch you someday. Fella, just understand that. We've got to realize that, all of us. And why do you look at the speck, little tiny piece of dust in your brother's eye or your sister's eye? Oh, she's wearing a little bit of eye makeup or a little makeup. I'm going to get her. I'm going to feel self-righteous now. No. Why do you do that? But you do not consider the plank of self-righteousness, harshness, judgmentalism, and everything else that may be in your own eye. God is speaking to you, so understand that. Any of you who have these problems and be willing to think about it, do I have this problem? Many do, and we've got to get over it. 
Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck out of your eye and look at the plank, the great big two-by-four that is in your eye? Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck. Little tiny problem by comparison in your brother's eye. Some young woman comes in and everything is not exactly right. Well, that's understandable. She's of a different generation. Some young man, someone's music is not perfect. Now, if they play it just terribly loud and blast the neighborhood out at, uh, at uh, you know, 12.30 a.m., I get concerned too, but we can be broad-minded in the right way. We don't want to be broad-minded in the wrong way and say one thing is as good as another. There are varying degrees of culture and taste and propriety, and it's good to teach propriety and quality as a way of life, but not teach this thing of going around judging each other and hurting each other and forgetting the really big things in God's mind that we ought to be doing. So I hope all of us can really understand that. Let's uh, go on at this point to uh, Matthew chapter 25, brethren, Matthew 25. And I'm going to be reading here, beginning in verse 31. Again, we're familiar with this, but it's very important. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory, and all the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate one from another. As the shepherd divides the sheep from the goats. And He will set the sheep on His right hand, but the goats on His left. Then the King will say to those on His right hand, Come, you blessed of My Father, Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Why? Why? Because you're real strict in keeping the commandments? Well, it's good to be strict in the right way, you know, in the sense that you don't break the Sabbath. But, you know, I've seen people, for instance, about the days of unleavened bread, they'll be so strict and strict and super strict and work for days to get every single possible speck of leaven out of their homes, out of their cars, out of anything you can imagine. Maybe even out of the bird's nest up in the tree in their backyard. I don't know. But they'll do that, and yet they will put others down. They will try to yell at them and make them feel belittled. They will catch them and try to hurt them over little stupid stuff. Is that love? No. That's wrong. That's being pinheaded. And so we need to get over that. I was hungry, and you gave me food. This is, of course, trying to catch people. A little tiny stuff is not food at all. That's terrible. That hurts new people. That hurts weak people. That gets people's, off the, people's minds off the big picture of worshiping and adoring God and being thankful to be alive and giving and helping and serving rather than trying to catch your brother who's been able and willing to come into the church, maybe in spite of his parents, if he's a young, new young man, Maybe he didn't want him to come or his friends, and yet we're waiting there to catch him about something. And this kind of thing we've got to get over it as a church. I was hungry, and you gave me food. Thirsty, you gave me drink. Stranger, and you took me in. How many of us are doing that? Most of us are not doing it as much as we should. I feel guilty myself sometimes on that because I know we're living in a dangerous world and I know that we used to help people more than we do now. That is in Pasadena, and I did personally, and my wife at times, because it was less dangerous to give them food. We didn't always bring some, uh, let's say, bum or beggar into the house, but we would try to give them food and literally take it to the door if they were looked like they had some kind of disease or this or that. We maybe should, maybe should have even brought them in the house. It's hard to know. Are they a criminal or are they a sex fiend? We don't know today. 
But you do need to try to help. Sometimes we don't stop for a uh, hitchhiker as much as we would. I used to stop for them more, but then I read all these articles about how they'll kill you and rape your wife, and so you've got to be more careful. So we do need to use wisdom. But the attitude of helping and serving to the degree we can needs to be there. I was naked, and you clothed me, sick, and you visited me. As a church, brethren, I've mentioned this already to our ministry in the conference a while back, and I would mention it again to all of you, brethren, and hope it gets around the world. I think we need to get more, whatever we call them, committees or groups to visit the sick, to call people when they don't come to church and welcome them back and ask how they're doing. We're, we're small. We're not able to have all those things as much as we used to in worldwide at other churches. But it might be good if we do more of that so that people feel we genuinely care about them, that we love them, we're concerned, and we visit the sick and visit those in prison and so on. And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger? And there are strangers we need to help sometimes. We need to be careful, yes. We may not want to pick some great big burly guy up at dark if our wife's there with us and maybe subject her to rape or violence or something. But we, we do need to be more careful nevertheless to help and have that attitude and do what we can. When we were a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you, when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer, Assuredly I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these brethren, you did it to me. So this is the attitude we've got to have. We've got to have wisdom in the way we carry it out, practicality, yes. But the attitude must be there to give, to help, and to serve. And we need to reflect that more as a church. Again, that is not to take our mind off getting the gospel of the kingdom of God out. We know that we can't save the world. We could take up collections as the Methodists used to, and I'm not criticizing them. I was one, but I heard all the time about the starving Chinese. And my sister may remember in the first Methodist church, we used to have two sides to the envelope. And one side was for the local church and the other side was for the missions or something. And I would put a nickel or a, or a dime in the, in the local and another nickel or dime in the other as a kid growing up and heard about the starving Chinese. Well, the starving Chinese became communists <laughs> and their Christian missions didn't seem to help them. And they used to get whole gobs of them lined up and give them, uh, give them you know, tell them about Jesus and they'd line up so they'd get a bowl of soup. I know all that stuff. They didn't do a lot of good. They were hearing about the wrong Jesus Christ, and maybe it wasn't the right way. Yet some of the attitudes of those people that went out there were probably very good. And in the world tomorrow, in the resurrection, some of those people may have a higher reward than some of us because they were willing to give, go out there and give and help and serve and serve and serve. So that doesn't mean we need to give up the truth we have, you know, the pearl of great price. That's wonderful. We have that truth. But let's not look down on people who do try to help others in that way. And we should try to help the people in India and China once in a while on an individual basis. But as I've said, if we took all the money that came into the church, every single dime, and sent it to India, it would be gone in about one day or maybe one hour. And most of the people would keep right on starving. We know that because of their way of life. But we still want to help people individually. You never find Christ and the apostles taking up an offering to send to the pagans down in darkest Africa. You know, Africa wasn't that far from them. They're in the Middle East. 
That's something you might bear in mind. That wasn't their, that wasn't their thing. You don't find that example. But you do find them trying to help people individually who were their neighbor, close by, someone they had an opportunity to help personally. So that's the main thing we can do. And once in a while in the community, if there's a huge flood here in Charlotte or an earthquake in L.A. or San Francisco or some other tragedy somewhere else, and you have neighbors and can pitch in and help, that's a good thing for all of us to do, to build that attitude. That's what God wants. That's what He wants in all of us. So we are going to have to share eternity with each other and with people in the world. We've got to learn to get along with one another, love each other, forgive each other, help each other, encourage each other, not constantly be getting quick to catch one another at this or that or to catch the world, want to love the world as best we can, not their sins, but to have the attitude of wanting to help them. And the attitude of forgiving one another and forgiving the world, too. A lot of times they don't know what they're doing. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do, and they don't. Let's turn now, if you would, brethren, to uh, the book of, uh, first of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 13. Near the end of his life here, right after the final Passover, Jesus said this, John 13:34. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you love one another. So that's what made it new. He showed by his example, as I have loved you, in giving and helping and serving all day long, a constant outflowing concern to people, teaching them, helping them, encouraging them, healing them, blessing them. He gave that example. Love one another as I have loved you. By this, here's an identifying sign. Does this sign picture this church? Well, to some extent, but it should even more. By this shall all know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Not if you catch one another over minor faults. Not if you feel self-righteous toward one another over minor things. But if you love one another. That's the key thing. Some of you might say, you're not showing love by correcting. Well, yes, I am. That is my motive, frankly, today. And a loving parent will correct his child. And I will correct you, and it won't always be fun. But it will do you good in the end, if you understand where I'm coming from. It will do you a lot of good. So let's get this straight. So we've... uh, got to get over the vilifying some of our younger people over little stuff and other people about things and and, and obviously not have that approach rather than the approach of helping and serving and building people among ourselves and all over the world. The world is in chaos. People are getting their heads chopped off. People are going to begin having waves of disease epidemics and just hurting awful And brethren, we need to think of those big, big things and not get concerned about little picky things that are comparatively nothing by comparison, nothing. So let's quit judging over those minor things. Mr. Armstrong, again, if you watched his actions over the time, as I told this younger minister in Brickett Wood, rather than just what he said, I remember a couple of three times, well, maybe maybe two or three dozen times, but several times I would carry out something that he had made as a rule 
But if I carried it out too strictly, I found he would reverse it (laughs) because he himself sort of saw the big picture when he saw his own rule enforced too much among the students and among the brethren there. He did not want to hurt people or make a big deal out of little things, whatever it was. And there were a number of things like that that were involved. Remember Matthew chapter 23, uh, Matthew chapter 23, so important to understand at this point. Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and Pharisees sit on Mo- in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do, but don't do according to their works. Because they were hypocrites. They'd say one thing and do another. For they say and do not. For they lay heavy burdens, uh, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with their fingers. You see, they had all these rules and all these little ways to catch people and to make them feel more important and more righteous. And so... He told them in verse 15, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte. Yes, we want to get the work done, but these guys were traveling to get their message out, apparently. And when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself, or son of the grave, Gehenna. Well, in this case, it was hell. Gehenna is the Greek word. So we've got to be careful of that approach of laying too many burdens that are not in God's Word directly and trying to enforce those on people in a way that hurts people and confuses them. And as we grow, as we have, I pray that we will have thousands more people coming into the church of God in general, not just this fellowship, hopefully tens of thousands, and hopefully thousands more into this fellowship, and hundreds and maybe thousands more young people, if we're there laying for them, ready to catch them, if they don't follow some exact rule that we used to have back at a certain point in time in Ambassador College or somewhere else and lay that on them for they haven't had the whole spectrum of being taught a way of life through class after class, forum after forum, assembly after assembly, the room monitors, the dorm monitors, the dorm meetings, all that to help them for years. And we expect people to pick right up on that. They're not ready for that. We can hurt them terribly. We need to focus on the big picture again. Love God and love your neighbor. That's the big picture and certainly the Ten Commandments. So he said in verse 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint, anise, and cumin on the little garden herbs and so forth. Nothing wrong with that, but they were tithing, I guess, if someone gave them an ice cream cone, they'd tithe on the, tithe on the ice cream cone. I think, in effect, that was what Jesus was saying. You're, you're getting buggy about that. And have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, being really fair in the way you administer everything, mercy, and that's, of course, so terribly important to constantly have mercy and be known, which this church must be and our ministry must be as instruments of mercy, mercy and faith, for we trust in God. So that's what God said to emphasize. These ought you to have done justice, mercy, and faith, and not to leave the other tithing undone. We've taught that, of course. Don't leave tithing undone, but don't get so strict about every little speck of leaven or every little bit of ice cream that you get and you've got to tithe on that or just using some other example that's extreme. That isn't what 
is the idea of the command. The commandment is to do what is basically obvious and spelled out by the examples in the Bible, not by, ma- not by taking it to an extreme. What is a genuine Christian, uh, Christian personality? Let's think about that. None of us here have that to the degree that we should, let me say that. Certainly I don't, and I don't think any of us do to the degree that we should. But I remember one man that I came to know and love very well, and he was not perfect, but he had a great deal of warmth and kindness, and yet he had tact and diplomacy and wisdom and kind of it exuded uh, that kind of thing where he was careful in what he said and not trying to put others down, not trying to catch them over little things, was constantly trying to be helpful, but had a great deal of tact and diplomacy, but a tremendous degree of warmth, personal warmth, not uh, Bob Hope type warmth. He wasn't a big joke teller or anything, and certainly that's not wrong either if someone has that. But I've always thought of that man who is not here with us now. He's, he's dead, but is having a great deal of that. So I can honor him without thought of anyone worshiping him because they won't, and he wouldn't want that. But there, he, I'm sure he was, you know, those who knew him even better than I could tell you faults he had because he was human. But there are people like that that have this constant feeling. You get the feeling of kindness and warmth and outflowing concern, and yet they have wisdom and tact. But when people leave their presence, they're encouraged. They're not always put down or judged, or they feel that this person has their best interests at heart, and yet not compromising with the truth, but is there to help, to give, to serve in a wise and understanding way. So let's all strive for a true Christ-like personality. You know, that's the kind of person I would like to be with for the next 10 billion years. What kind of person would you like to be with for the next 10 billion years? Someone who's really strict and trying to catch you or yell at you or put you down? Or a person who you sense is loving and yet firm in the right way, but kind, merciful, helpful, constructive, and yet has great deal of wisdom and diplomacy and courtesy, culture in the right way, those are the balances that we want to strive for, brethren. And I hope that all of us can do that because none of us have this perfect Christ-like personality. But if we do, to the degree that we do, we can let our light shine. We want to strive for that and let our light shine. In Luke chapter 10, if you turn there with me, in Luke, the Gospel of Luke chapter 10, a very familiar passage, but one we need to think about a great deal. Beginning in verse 25, Luke 10, 25, a certain lawyer came to Jesus and tested him. This guy was trying to catch him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? In other words, how do you take it? And so he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. Boy, that's true. That's the first and big commandment, Jesus tells us back in, Mark, in Matthew chapter 22. That's the big stuff, to love God with all your heart and sincerely want to reflect the love, the kindness, the patience, the mercy, the forgiveness, the outflowing concern, and yet the wisdom and the strength of God. And your neighbor as yourself. That's the second part, the second great commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. How would you want to be treated if you're a new member in a church, 
Would you want to be welcomed as our new members come in and made to feel at home and that there's not a sense of judgmentalism here and that we're wanting them, we're loving them, we're serving them. If they make a mistake, someone's not just ready to leap on them and catch them or yell at them. Some people yell at other people around a lot. And that's not good either. We've got to quit yelling and we've got to try to serve one another. That hurts. Some people don't are bothered by yelling. I'm not. I guess I grew up around Coach Kaminsky, and even my dad could yell pretty good at times, and others. But some people are hurt if people start yelling, and they just they will remember that months or years later, and that hurts them a great deal. So love your neighbor as yourself. And he said, you have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. So Jesus acknowledged that is absolutely the most important thing, to love God with all of your being and your neighbor as yourself. And certainly you love God by keeping all ten of the commandments then. The rest of them are based on that. But he wanted to justify himself, said, and who is my neighbor? Oh, well, you know, I'll love the guy next door, but, you know, let's not carry this too far. He had this attitude. And then Jesus said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, departed, leaving him half dead. Then he got beat up, this fellow. And now by chance a certain priest came down that road. Who were the priests? They weren't Catholic priests. The Catholic Church didn't come along till, frankly, hundreds of years later. They claimed they were just 100 years later, but they weren't. <laughs> they came along a long time later. It wasn't them. It was a Jewish priest. They were very strict on the law. Very strict. They added all the do's and don'ts and went along with that. That is, some of the priests did. And uh, the Pharisees were the worst, but the priests were involved as well. So he went on the other side. He said, well, look at this guy. Well, I better get away from him, and I'll go walk on the other side. A certain Samaritan then, I'm sorry, a certain Levite, when he came by, uh, he went on the other side. And he passed him by. So he was, of course, a teacher of the law as well. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. Now, who were the Samaritans? They were the mixed people. Some of them were partly Jews, scattered people that were mixed, and then they were partly Gentile, and they were looked down on by the pure Jews. But he came, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. A fellow human being. Who is your neighbor? Well, your neighbor may be the, you know, 1.3 billion people over in China and the 1.1 billion people in India. But as I've said before, you can't always help all of them individually. You see what I mean? And Jesus didn't try to show us we'd better take all the money from the church and the work. And the Apostle Paul said, no, let's not help the widows here. Let's just send it all to India. They had starving people in the Orient back then too, I'm sure, in Africa. But the, this was a neighbor right close by. This was a neighbor right close by that you could help. And so the Samaritan had compassion on him and went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring in oil and wine. Oil would soften the wine and wine uh, would, the wound, and wine would, of course, kill the germs. And often that's still a good thing to do. Many of us have found that. Sometimes wine will not damage the surrounding skin and tissue as much as mercurochrome or iodine or some other thing. Just wine has a natural antibiotic. So that's another matter. But anyway, he did that, and that was Jesus' own teaching. It's all right to, to, to bind up a wound or to take stitches and things like that, obviously. And he set him on his own animal, brought him to the inn, and took care of him. On the next day, he didn't stay forever. Now, the guy had his own business. God doesn't expect us to lose our job. 
but he had some extra money and he would give it to the innkeeper and said, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I'll pay again you when I come. For which of these, or Jesus said, so which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And of course, this man said, he who showed mercy to him, this Jewish teacher. Then Jesus said, go and do likewise. Now it's interesting that the man who fell among thieves and was beaten up, who was he? We don't know. Maybe he was a black man. Maybe he was an oriental man. Maybe he was uh, an unconverted or non-Jewish white man. Didn't make any difference, didn't it? And to Jesus, he just gave the parable. A fellow human being. That's who he was. And he was right nearby and fell into trouble Jesus didn't have to say, take your money and send it off to India. He was right there, an immediate need. And this fellow was right there. And the only one who was there at the moment willing to help him. So you help him. And this is, again, the attitude, brethren. We have to use wisdom, yes. But wisdom doesn't mean always passing by on the other side. (laughs) And we've got to be careful we don't do that. Because some of us do that. I've done that. And you've done that. Sometimes we're just so busy, we see some problem, we go on. Now, sometimes I'll see a person with a flat tire or some engine trouble by the road. I don't always stop because I could get hit from behind and I'm speeding along. And as my family and all my friends can tell you, I wouldn't be any help anyway. And I know that. And I'm not using that as an excuse. But, you know, all I can do is change the the bulbs in in a flashlight. And I can't fix an engine to save my life, literally. And so I wouldn't be of any help. But uh, I trust some others will. And I have sometimes offered a silent prayer of someone to help him. But if it's some woman late at night, I might help just to keep that she wasn't assaulted or hurt or something. Or we ought to try to help any way we can in any way we can. And I'm sure many of us have done that. I have done that. And we've tried to help people by literally driving them down to the Y or the Salvation Army or giving them some food or whatever. But we don't do that as much as we should at all. Again, the attitude. Let's build that attitude within ourselves of giving, helping, serving in every way we can. That's so important. All right. Let's go on now to, if you would, turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. And I'm going to begin reading here. And, uh, well, Mr. Amon covered the first three verses, so I won't repeat those. That's all right. He saved me time in this case. I won't worry about it. (laughs) And... uh, But you are to give your life as a living sacrifice to God without question. And we're to do that. And if our life is given to God as a living sacrifice, then we will certainly be following through on helping others and honoring God with our lives. Turn to verse 9 here, Romans 12, 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor that which is evil. Cling to what is good. Yes, you want to cling to it. Appreciate it deeply. Not wrong to abhor what is evil, but that doesn't mean you correct other people and are on their case, but certainly in your attitude and you want to deeply appreciate the difference. Then, be kindly affectionate one to another. Kindly affectionate. Some people have a more natural warmth and kindness than others. And I know that. And some of you have a lot more than I do, or some of you have more than each other. Use that. And all of us need to develop more. Some of us have more strengths just in a particular way that we're easygoing and we have this kind of warm, bubbly something. That's wonderful. Build on that. And those of us who don't have that by nature quite as much, ask God for it. Build it. Show it in other ways. We may not be just warm and bubbly, but we can certainly let people know we're concerned for them. We love them. We want to serve them. 
I know out in L.A. years ago, I was pastoring a, a big church, and we had a lot of blacks there. And I said, I would be willing to come and visit you and help you and serve you in whatever way I can. And if I needed to, I would be willing to give my life for you. And a number came up and said they really appreciated me saying that, and I met it. I wasn't perfect in it, but I did go down and visit in very dangerous areas at that point, and later on even more in a smaller Los Angeles church. I remember going down with Mr. Rufus Turner, one of our black elders, and uh, then Mordecai Joseph, a Jewish elder. And uh, I noticed one wonderful thing about the black brethren and even co-workers or prospective members I would visit. If it was in a dangerous area... Every single time, and I mean this, every single time they would walk us to the curb afterward, be after dark, and I said, you're trying to keep us safe. <laughs> I finally said, well, we know in the neighborhood, this guy said. So they, they would, you know, they watched out for us, and uh, we were safer, and we wanted to help them. And in a sense, in any neighborhood like that, black or white, you need to love people, and you may have to take certain chances in order to help people. We've got to do that and try to do everything we can. But again, God looks on the heart and our attitude had better be right. Anyway, uh, it shows here to be kindly affectionate with brotherly love and honor giving preference to one another. Not trying to hurt some brother, but give preference to him. Not lagging in diligence. See, work hard in God's work, in God's church. Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation. Be patient in trials, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints. Yes, there we are. Do you help others when they're in need? Do you try to go and give to them and help them? We should do that more than we do, all of us. Every one of us should do more. Distributing to the needs of the saints. Given to hospitality. Try to have others over and help them and encourage them. And do it again, not to show off, but because you genuinely want to help others and encourage them. Give into hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. If people are really hurting, weep with them and try to show concern. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. My wife and I noticed for a number of years in the latter years at Pasadena that a number, not all at all, I'm not trying to be inclusive, but a number of the ministers and leading executives and big shots generally sat down in the left front area of the church in the auditorium. And after church, some of them would uh, stand around and say, well, I'm wearing this kind of suit. And the woman would say, do you have a something St. John, John's or St. something? St. John's Knit, I guess it is. <laughs> My wife is told the name. They, is that a St. John's Knit? And is that this or that? They'd constantly go on with this stuff. And they had money more than the other brethren. And there they were, always visiting with one another, you know, trying to act important to one another. And that's not what we're here for. Now, I had lots of other mistakes and sins, maybe some much worse than that. Don't get me wrong, but at least I didn't do that. I remember trying to spread out. I did it for a while, and I began to realize this is, this is really not where I belong. I belong out among the brethren. And you'll notice here that we don't do that. We try to get out among you, Mr. Ames and Mr. Bardot and Mr. Uh, Davis and uh, all of our ministers here, Mr. Party and the rest of us. I don't want to leave anyone out. I'm just looking around real quick. But we try to get out among you and serve you. Mr. Amen is here with us now, another elder. 
And do we do that perfectly? No, probably not. Sometimes I'll get caught by one or two early on and don't get to see everybody. And a couple of times recently I've meant to say hello to someone and suddenly I realized they're gone by the time I was ready to say hello to them. But I try to go out and spread around. Now, I don't do it perfectly as I used to, frankly. And Mr. Amen can persecute me the next time because I'm going to use the old age thing now. <laughs> but sometimes after preaching, I'm so tired that I literally feel faint. And I'm not exaggerating. I'm just so tired that I just have got to go sit down. And so I'll sometimes, some of you remember that, I'll come up and say, Mr. McNaughton, can I sit with you? I'm so tired to give me an excuse to sit so I can talk and not be standing up feeling, oh, I'm not sure how much longer I can stand up. Mr. Armstrong, when he got to that point and got so tired, he would sometimes go home early. Not because he didn't love the brethren, but because he didn't want to fall over or have another heart attack. <laughs> He'd already had one in 19, uh, what was it, 1977, I think. So from then on, he didn't stay around and visit very long. But at any rate, you can understand those things if you're willing to. But generally, we'd better try to get around. And whoever is here that has a big job or title or money or whatever, we want to help everyone else. That's why but our attitude. Again, God looks on the attitude. We should try to do that and associate with everyone. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Don't be, think you're a big shot and you're better than others. I've noticed that people who have money or have success often do think of themselves as more important just because of that. You could tell that. And that's a human problem they have to work on. Repay no one evil for evil. If someone hurts you, say, well, say, wait a minute, I'm thinking I'll get them later. No, don't do that. The minute that thought crosses your mind, repent. Say, I'm sorry, I'm not going to get them later. I'm going to let God take care of it, and He will take care of it. As I told you, brethren, sincerely, I've had people hurt me terribly and try to get rid of me, literally destroy my entire career, get me out of the ministry, everything else. And the leading ones who tried to do that specifically are all dead. I'm not happy about it, but they are dead. And I didn't know they would be dead by now, but now they're the ones that most, most directly did all of that are virtually all dead. I guess not all, but God does take care of things. He's alive. Don't ever doubt that. He will take care of it. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Try to get along and love them and help them and serve them. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves. Again, don't say, I'm going to get even, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. I know the day may come because of preaching strongly on television or in person or whatever. Someone may beat me up and I have these eye problems and, and uh, you know, intraocular implant. They could put my eye out and I'd be partially blind and in a jail or somewhere and beaten up. What do I better do about it? I better say, God, you're alive and you can take care of it. You let your servant, the Apostle Paul, go through that type of thing again and again and again. And he, God delivered him every time eventually. The final time he didn't, though. He put his head down on a chopping block and he was beheaded, apparently. But I'm sure in his case, he did go straight into the arms of Jesus, putting it that way, not to heaven as such. But the Spirit goes back to the God that gave it and Paul will be in the resurrection. But over and over until it was God's time, he was delivered. So let God take care of it. He is alive. Therefore, if your enemy hungers, feed him. One of my persons who made an enemy me asked me to help him. Literally cried out, help me, help me. And I did help him in quite a number of ways. 
and God takes care of it. Feed him. If he thirsts, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's God's command, and that's Jesus' teaching. So we want to really feel that way and do that way, brethren. We want to let God take care of these things because he will. One other little problem I want to mention for you here in this room and also for the rest of the brethren all over the United States. I had an article or a letter recently sent me along this line. The reason it's on my mind, but I know there are people here who have been persecuted. I sometimes kid them about it. I don't mean to persecute them. I better shut up if I kid too much. But this person mentioned that he was often kind of harassed. Uh, I think he said he's 42 or 44 years old or something. He was harassed for being a bachelor, and people are constantly putting him down way off from here now somewhere else. And uh, I've had women tell me the same thing. And, and why do we have to be put down? Do we have to be married to be in God's kingdom? <clears throat> no, you don't. No, you don't. I know that some of our ministers who've been deserted by their wives or whatever have just said they want to be like the Apostle Paul and just serve God better that way. And that's fine. And some of us have never been married in the church, as this young man was not ever married. And you don't have to be married. And I want us to understand that. I've tried to back off as I got this letter, and I've, I've thought about it for years because different ones have talked to me about it. Jesus Christ was never married. The Apostle Paul may not have been married. I think he probably was earlier because he was a member of the Sanhedrin, and, and, uh, but that's another story. He certainly wasn't married during his ministry. And others were not married of God's leading people. We know that. And uh, they were served and served and served and were never married. So that's not something we need to think someone's got to be married to be good, as good as you are. That's not the case. So we've got to be careful putting each other down if we're married or, or not married or if we have this little thing or that thing in our personal life. Be careful not to judge one another and put each other down. If we can kid a young man in a right way saying it's time to get married and help him get married i did that to some of my ex big sandy students and patrick wayne was this great big guy used to be over mailing and and uh he called me when he was 30 years old he said well you said you'd give us till age 30 to get married and i'm still not married and he was six four and a half and 230 or 40 pounds and he had his uh, master his martial arts uh, certificates and was an instructor on the Dallas Police Department. So before he came in the church, I wasn't going to beat him up, you see. <laughs> I would harass him, say, you need to get married. And, uh, but uh, he, so he was very sincere and childlike, and he said, well, what, what do you think? And I said, well, uh, you know, the Pope gives you dispensations. I'll give you three more years, Patrick, and then you better be married. I'm going to get you. <laughs> so I don't know if he's married now. I don't think he is, but you know what I mean. We could kid in the right way and help people. But again, help them if they're too heavy to lose weight. But be sure the kidding you're about something is not persecution or trying to constantly make them feel bad or be put down. These are things we all ought to work on in order to have the attitude and the approach of genuine uh, love, as I've said. Turn to First John, if you would, brethren. First John, chapter 4. First John, chapter 4. And verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. See, God the Father. If we have love one to another, God abides in us. See, that's a sign that God's in us if we really have that kind of love. 
and His love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He's given us of His Spirit. And then he goes down a little bit later here. He says in verse uh, 19, We love Him because He first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, always trying to put down his brother, hurt his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. So that is a command from our Father in heaven through his word. So we want to understand that, and that's so important. Let your light shine. Shine your light and show this kind of attitude of kindness and help and service. Let's do more of it as a church. Let's get some visiting committees, people to visit the sick, call on those who have not here for a while and let them know we care and other ways we can help and serve. Pitch into the community, you brethren and elders around the world and other churches. Let's get more of this going. And we need to have this. And God will bless us. You say, well, we've got to do the work. Well, God will bless us more in doing the work if we do that, frankly. He will back us up more. And you'll see that it will work. Let's do the whole thing. We can grow in this area. And we need to grow in this area without question. 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13. You, brethren, should know this one. The love chapter. Though I speak with tongue of men and angels and have not love, I become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not love, I am nothing. That's powerful. Have tremendous faith and tremendous wisdom and knowledge and all this, but you're, in a sense, in God's sight, nothing if you don't have the biggest single thing of all. You're going to live with one another if you're in God's church and stay in God's church for the next several billion or trillion years. We can't count time that way. We better learn to love each other. What kind of person do you want to live with for the next trillion years? A person who's genuinely kind and warm and forgiving and outflowing concern and all the rest or someone who's constantly trying to hurt you, catch you, put you down, shout at you, make you feel bad and like a worm? I think you all know the answer. Let's be like that. Let's be like that kind of person through God's help and grow to be like that kind of person so that we can be in God's kingdom and help these people that will need our help in tomorrow's world. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor. See, there are people in the world that go around doing those things. And though I give my body to be burned, you know, do these outward things, but the attitude is trying to make points with God or show off and you don't have real love, then you're nothing. Love suffers long, doesn't get upset real quick, and is kind. Love does not envy, not constantly trying to compete and get the best of the other guy. Love does not parade itself, it's not showing off, it's not puffed up, does not behave rudely, you see, where you're quick to say something loud or bad or hurt someone. Does not seek its own, is not trying to just reinforce your own glory or whatever, is not provoked, thinks no evil, or as the margin says, keeps no account of evil. Don't have a black book and keep account of people's past sins. Love keeps no account of evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, 
endures all things. See, because it has genuine outflowing concern, it's hard to hurt that person's feelings. He genuinely loves you always, endures all things. Love never fails. But whether they're prophecies, they will fail. Tongues, they will cease. Whether there's knowledge, it will vanish away. What do you mean? Prophecies are going to cease. Some people misinterpret that. Knowledge is going to be no more. No, there will be knowledge, but it'll be a different kind of knowledge. And the prophecies we've had will all be completed. It will cease. Those prophecies will be finished, done. doesn't mean the prophecies of God will not happen. And so he said at the end of the verse here, the end of the chapter, jumping ahead for time, he says, And now abide faith. You've got to have faith and trust in God, believe in God. Hope, a positive, optimistic attitude. That God loves you and He will work all things together for good and love. There's kindness and warmth and affection and spirit of service toward your fellow man and the love and worship and adoration toward God. Faith, hope, and love. These three, but the greatest, the greatest single thing in the world is love. That's what the Bible says. And that's what the Bible shows from one end to the other. Turn with me back to Matthew again, just very briefly. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he said in verse chapter 5, verse 14, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it on a, under a basket but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Verse 16, Let your light so shine. So again I say, shine your light. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And that should be the motive to honor God. So if we as the living church of God build that within our lives, within our congregations, and with even different committees and groups and ways we can do it as a team, we will honor God a lot more. And we will shine our light with increasing power to the honor of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ.